You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am joined by Dr. Philippa Kay, a GP and author. She has a weekly column in Woman magazine and appears often on This Morning, the BBC, Channel 5, Sky News, among many more. She is the GP ambassador for Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust and she's here today to talk about her story. Her recent book, Doctors Get Cancer 2, A Doctor's Diary of Life and Recovery from Cancer, is just out, and we're going to be talking about that story today. So, Dr. Philippa Kay was 39 years old when she heard those dreaded words, it's cancer. The diagnosis of bowel cancer would change her life and mean crossing the divide from being a doctor to being a patient. She soon discovered that her years of training and experience had not prepared her for the realities of actually living with cancer. This is a beautiful story of hope and one that's filled with a lot of heartbreaking and enlightening moments. Um, So I can't wait to share this conversation with you today. So let's get into this episode. I warn you guys that this is quite quite the emotional ride. Uh, But yeah, let's get into the conversation with Dr. Philippa Kay. You're here on the show today to talk about your brand new book. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed a real beautiful story of, of hope. And that's where I want to start with you today. So if we dive right into the content, you mentioned that you were you were 39 when you were diagnosed with bowel cancer. I just wonder if it if it's even possible to put into words for our audience, if you could explain what that moment was like and, and what that what that impact was like. So <laughs> it's really difficult to avoid using cliches yeah. um, and hyperbole when it comes to cancer um, because the feelings and the emotions are so huge and often so conflicting that that's all we can do is that we use sort of cliches, but that doesn't mean that they're not true. Um, I wasn't expecting a cancer diagnosis and my doctors weren't expecting a cancer diagnosis. Um, And when I lay back on the bed, having my colonoscopy and I glanced up at the screen and I saw the cancer and I turned my head to meet the surgeon's eyes to ask him. Um, And as his eyes came up to mine, I knew straight away that I knew. And as the room got quieter and quieter and the nurses got kinder and everybody got gentler, the more I knew. And actually, in that moment, I reacted almost like a doctor only, because doctors have a barrier, we have a wall that 
allows us to continue to function during times of great distress because we see things that are hugely distressing um, to us as well as to you and we have to keep going and so I slipped very much into doctor mode okay this is what's happening what's next what's the plan what my odds you know what are the numbers blah 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 and it took a while for me to let that guard down um, and to start to process because I think Looking back now, I spent a lot of my time during my cancer treatment wishing and hoping and wanting to get back to normal, getting back to how it was before. But cancer changes you too much for that. And I now understand that because it invades, just as it invades your body, it invades every area of your life, every role you play, every relationship that you have. And that's essentially one of the reasons why it's so life-changing is because it's everywhere all the time one thing that a lot of people say about fear is the more that you understand the topic the less scared you tend to be of it and with you being a doctor does did that reign true at all or I just wonder what your reaction was like having been a doctor and, and knowing this a lot more than the, the normal person do you think it would have been different at all if you weren't a doctor the way you reacted yes I think it is very different I spent my whole life wanted to be a doctor and I spent my whole medical life trying to educate and empower people with knowledge um, because understanding your body um, will help you look after your body and my knowledge didn't help me it didn't stop me getting cancer um, and it didn't make me a super patient at all even though somehow I felt that it should um, which is nonsense but all doctors think like that um, and there are there are various aspects so for example lots of people the hospitals are scary places for me a hospital is not a scary place actually for me a hospital is a safe place it's a place where i know that everybody inside it at that moment in time is trying to do their best to look after you for you to have the best outcome that you have um, can have and that so that makes me feel safe so i'm not scared of things like that but i am trained to always think what happens if this doesn't work? What next? And so I was always thinking like that. And I was always worrying about sort of future and plan B, as opposed to just accepting where I was. And when you have cancer, all you can do is be where you are and be in the present. And yet my training was teaching me not to be like that. And so those two things fought. Um, and often there would be situations where it was very difficult to turn off the doctor in control part. So for example, there were times in ICU where things would be going wrong and the doctor part of my brain would be waiting for the doctor that was treating me to say the drugs that I thought that we needed or whatever else and be really sort of quite clinical about it whilst the patient part of my brain was just screaming, you're dying now. Um, and so there was a definite conflict the whole way through. You say in the book that it, it, it doesn't have to be the beginning of the end. Um, but I wonder when, when you meet such a, a scary uphill battle like that, that's just thrust upon you, how did you manage to, or what advice would you give in terms of how do you manage to clear your head from all the noise and the fear and just begin to, to focus on, on what needs to be done next? A combination of things. Firstly, therapy. 
find therapy however you can find it in whatever way works for you be that through your GP through your local IAPT which is improving access to psychological therapy be that through a charity or group therapy or wherever else um, you know or apps things even like Headspace um, just to be able to get out of your head and into your body um, so I think that therapy is really important. For me, writing the diary was really important. It was catharsis. It was me emotionally vomiting my feelings onto the page. But I don't actually think that you have to deal with the fear. I don't think that you have to deal with your sadness. I don't think you have to sort of, sort of deal with any of those potentially negative emotions and move on from them. You have to accept that they're there. And that's different because you can be scared and brave and you can be sad and angry and determined and one doesn't negate the other and I think that that's really important because I was scared all the time I was pissed off a lot of the time but I was always going to keep going and actually what I've come to realize is that that's where the strength is is that you don't being brave isn't about running onto a battlefield you know um, and being silly it's about understanding what your risks are and going anyway. And it's that determination is what makes you strong. And you can be scared anyway and still do that. And so I think that actually trying to potentially fix an emotion or rid yourself of an emotion is not always helpful. We have to accept that they're there and still keep going anyway. Yeah, you mentioned the, the right in the diary there. And for those who aren't the way the book is, a, a published version of that diary um, and you partly answered the question there on the motive behind writing it um, I just want to know if you can expand on what what how big a part did the diary play as a as a supporting tool because I imagine it was it was almost a, a support network it was like you know someone who was always there for you throughout it is that right yes and I wasn't somebody um Sorry, that was my daughter just shutting the door. Um, I wasn't a diary writer. I wasn't a little girl who wrote a diary, you know. Um, but the day after my diagnosis, I had wasn't in surgery and I had a day to, um, I think I was writing magazine copy and I sat at my desk and I couldn't do it. And the words just started flowing um, and I almost couldn't stop them. And I wrote every single day and I wrote at three in the morning and I wrote two in the afternoon and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And my keyboard never said to me, you said that last week. Um, and it never had a reaction. And actually your loved ones and your friends and your family, they can't help it. They have a reaction to what you say. And you know that they have a reaction. And I and I guess some of this is the doctor that I always felt that I also had to look after them. Um, and I didn't have to protect my diary from me. It could take it. Um, and for me, that was really valuable. And I had no intention of publishing it. I was trying to put order to the chaos that was in my head and the chaos that cancer brings to your world. Um, and it was probably six months, nine months, I don't know, somewhere down the line where I began to think about it because Cancer is a really lonely journey um, and you can be surrounded by people and I'm lucky I have lots of people, but every time you have chemo and every procedure and every investigation, you're on your own and you can have someone next to you, but you're the one going through it and it feels really lonely. 
And I began to think that actually, if someone else could read this, that they would feel that there was somebody else who has walked that path, somebody who truly understands and that they therefore might feel less alone. But also that it isn't, I didn't want it to just be for patients with cancer or people who have had cancer, but for their friends and family as well, because I really wanted them to know how to help and how not to help. And I hope, I still hope that the book will do that. What, what I find amazing um, in a way is that I made the decision to publish it. I understood, of course, what was happening with that. And yet when the book proofs arrived um, and my husband came upstairs and said, I'm reading it. I was like, don't do that. That's very intrusive. What are you doing? So, so it's a very different um, book for me in comparison to all the other books that I've published because essentially it's me. And doctors, we help in all kinds of ways. Um, and one of the ways, especially a GP helps, is with themselves. We say, come and see me next week. Um, and we use ourselves. And that's what I'm doing here is that I'm saying, here I am. Um, and this is me and my thoughts. And I hope it helps. Yeah, it is. An, it's an incredibly brave and, and, and vulnerable, um, you know, thing to do to publish it. And I wonder, through the process of, of writing this diary, I wonder if going forward in the future now, that you think you would maybe use journaling as a as a just a general mental health tool because most of the mental health advocates and, and speakers I've had on this show they all talk about the power of journaling. Do you think that this is a practice you may use in the future going forward? Um, in January, February last year, I had hoped that all my treatment was done, and it wasn't. And I had new lesions, and I had various procedures and operations in 2020 in the pandemic, culminating in a whopper of a surgery and it, uh, chemotherapy that went directly into my tummy. Um, and I wrote the diary very sporadically last year because I didn't want to be a cancer patient anymore. And because it was so difficult being a cancer patient um, in the pandemic and I couldn't do it. Um, and so it would all come blurting out. This month is my month where I have to have scans and scopes and the waiting and the lying in the CT scanner and everything else takes me back to that original trauma and my need to write came straight back and how much it helped came straight back so right now I am um, will I be in the future I don't know because right now it's very much associated with cancer as opposed to moving forward um, but there are lots of things that I have used from the I guess the skill or the technique of journaling and writing that I still do so the first the first thing actually isn't necessarily about the writing, but more about the editing, which is that this was the first time someone took a red pen to my thoughts. Um, and that's a really odd process. And then I had to read my thoughts over and over and over again. And actually that repeated exposure has a real value in helping you process that and make you really think about it. And so often when I come up with the situation I am someone that would ruminate quite a lot and I would sort of tell myself you've been over that don't don't go over that again but actually now I think that the going over and over it for me actually helps because it sort of sieves out the noise um into what matters 
and and I found that bit useful um and I am definitely always a to-do lister and I guess you know that's that's some way of, of journaling um but we shall see and there are definitely things about my cancer treatment and journey that I will keep um, and things potentially not. And right now, for example, I'm still having therapy um, and I'm very open about that. Um, and I wonder what tools from what I will keep moving on. You wrote, there's a certain part in the book that just, it, it, it hit me harder than, than any other part. And, you know, I, I'm not afraid to admit I was brought to tears when I actually um, got to this part you actually wrote some some just-in-case letters and I just that must have been you know an absolutely horrific process to go through I wonder how did you manage to reflect on life in that moment and what were the major things coming into your head that moment was one of the lowest moments so in the back of the book, um, for people out there, there's a letter that I wrote before I went into hospital the first time, and it's a letter I wrote to my three children just in case. I didn't think I was going to die. I had no intention of dying. Um, not that anybody does necessarily, um, but I needed to do something just in case. And actually, there were three letters, um, and only one is in the book. There was a letter to my parents, there was a letter to my husband, and there was a letter to my children. And... The, the letters are very different, um, but the one to my children essentially is trying to distill a lifetime of love onto a piece of paper. And I still don't know how you do that. But the other presiding emotion in that letter is, is one of apology and one of maternal guilt, because I felt bad and I felt guilty and I apologise to my children in the letter. I say, I'm sorry if this has happened. I'm sorry if you're reading this letter. And now I realize that it wasn't my fault. And before my last huge surgery, I wrote a new set of letters. Um, and I've got all these letters, I can't throw them. Um, and in that second set to my children, again, it's a, it's a love letter, but I don't apologize. I tell them that I see how strong they are because that's what the year that separated those two letters did show me is that first of all it isn't my fault I didn't ask to have cancer um but secondly how strong and resilient my kids are but my middle son a few nights ago um said to me mommy can I read your book and he's nine and I said to him the book's not a secret but I'm not sure that you're ready. I'm not sure that you're old enough. And I think that there are things in there that you might find upsetting. And then I said to him, but do you know what? Go and have a look at the dedication because you might find something that surprises you. And then the littlest one wanted me to read to her or something or other. And I got distracted. And he came in and he came in really upset because he'd read the dedication, which is to my three children. And then, you know, there are some photos in the book, but he's seen those photos. And in fact, he saw me, but he saw my handwriting in the back of the book and he read that letter. And he came in and he sat on my bed and he cried and I joined in. And some of that was a feeling of relief because he got to read that letter with me sitting next to him, knowing that I'm safe and that I'm here. 
and he got to essentially to see on a piece of paper how much I love him and I can tell him but you know there is a real power of words and I use my words very carefully it's part of my job it's part of who I am um but those letters are very powerful and I still cry when I come across them in my drawer never mind read them because they take me back to the sheer desperation of those moments of I'm doing everything that I can to survive here but just in case yeah I wonder like when you're in that situation I wonder what it does in terms of putting what's important into perspective because I imagine when you're writing from that perspective and you're reflecting on your life up until that point maybe like all you know 40 years I imagine the things that come up aren't you know they aren't the big achievements they aren't the the materialistic things it's the it it's the person that you you know you you wish you were the person you know the peoples whose whose lives you've touched those things that aren't actually tangible or materialistic is is that right um I think I think lots of things I think different people will think different things but I was I am still I'm not afraid of of death I'm afraid of being in pain I'm afraid of dying horribly but I'm not afraid of death um and I think that lots of doctors would say that because we're exposed to death at really quite a young age. I was 24 um, and on the wards certifying people. Um, and also we see things that are worse than death. Um, and there are definitely situations which I think are worse than death. Um, so I wasn't scared of dying, but I was very frightened of what, what I would be leaving behind and what they would be missing by me not being. Um, and so I guess in a way they were love letters um, and the letters to my parents was again was again apologies but also gratitude and to my husband and I really thought hard about it because I don't really know how you write a lifetime of love in a letter um, and you know maybe Byron or Keats or someone would be able to tell me but I don't know how you write that because for me in some way love is very practical and it's being there um, and you show love in lots of ways and one of those ways is cutting up carrots for kids dinners you know, <laughs> and making sure that they go to the dentist and and all of those things love and care and and the letter to my husband became quite staged because it was like, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it was this desperation of, of how can I tell you all the things that you see me do, but maybe you don't notice, I don't know, or, or, or we divide our, you know, we're very much divide and conquer, but would he remember when we go to the optician and all of those things? And suddenly that became really important. Um, but it was about my family more than anything else and the other you said that despite such an amazing uh, cancer community that there is, that it can be a very lonely process sometimes, especially at night, you mentioned. And I wonder how, what that mental battle looks like and how you dealt with that mental battle. What were those nights of not enough sleep like? What were the things that were going through your mind and how did you combat them? Sleep deprivation is torture. Mm. Um, that's the first thing. Um, I, in, in ICU, um, especially, 
um, and nights were long and very hard and actually lots of thoughts were just about I, I didn't really think big at those periods of time at 3am and for me what worked always um, and what still works and what worked in the daytime in times of great pain be that physical or psychological was to shrink time so you don't think about oh there's another six hours before the day shift comes on or before my kids wake up or whatever else um, because that seems too long so you think about can I manage the next hour and if that's too long five minutes you know what can I do for five minutes or two minutes I'll listen to a song or you know I can distract myself and sometimes it was counting to 10 um, when things were really bad but shrinking time seemed to really help me stay present what did the the entire process teach you about the importance of a good support network in life and what were the qualities that you found most meaningful and most useful to you in that time from those around you so there's one moment that I can pinpoint that has changed me as a doctor but it was a night in ICU when things were going rather wrong um and it was very difficult and he came in and he sat on my bed and he held my hand and in that moment I didn't feel alone because the truth is, is that we can do hard things it's just easier if we have someone by our side when we do them and that has changed me more than anything because now when patients come to me I do the same for them because actually often we're not asking for things to be fixed and more than that lots of things can't be fixed but we can hold your hand whilst you do them and that would be the message that I would say to anybody who knows someone that's going through a trauma whatever that trauma is is that actually if you can just listen instead of trying to fix it and I understand why you can't you can't because it hurts you and we call that in psychological terms transference that when your partner or your best mate or whoever tells you something that that is upsetting them and you can see how much they're hurting you can't bear it and you feel that and because you feel that but what you're feeling is tiny percentage of what they're feeling and you can't bear it so you try and make it better and you say you're strong you're brave you've only got three more chemos to go hang in there you can do it I believe in you be positive and actually the person thinks but you're not hearing me because right now I don't feel brave I don't feel acknowledged even and so actually if you could just sit and listen and say that's hard and I'm here for me, I think that's invalu- invaluable. It's interesting you mentioned that because in the self-help or personal development space in which I've had a lot of these conversations, you hear a lot of people talk, and it's an old cliche, about the power of positivity. Now, I, I've always been skeptical of the actual impact of that. And this is why I'd love to ask you because your experience was such a serious situation at the time, once maybe if someone suggested that to you, the power of positivity, was there any power to it? Or were you just thinking, that is just cliche nonsense that I can't think about right now? If I was brave enough, I would have socked him in the face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I think that there is always something to be positive about. But this idea of 
constant, relentless positivity and not allowing any uh, sort of, in inverted commas, negative emotion in is not only pointless, but quite damaging because um, we all have these other feelings and they are just as valid. And being positive isn't necessarily going to change things. In the same way, I, I, I don't like the term battle with cancer because it's not a battle. Nobody made a tactical decision to move the troops left or right or whatever. And, and also the idea that, that you can therefore lose um, wasn't something that I really wanted to think about at the time. But as a doctor, I see actually the importance of knowing what to be positive about. So you can be positive. For example, I was positive and determined that I was going to be able to come through. I wasn't positive about doing it if that makes sense. So I wasn't positive about having to go to chemo. I just was going to go and I wasn't actually, didn't go skipping and laughing. Um, but as a doctor, I see patients or patients' relatives actually more than the patients who are so determined to only be positive, they can't consider a negative possibility. And so that means that it becomes very difficult for us to forward plan because there may be a point when what we're becoming positive about is a peaceful, pain-free death. And that's not the same as being positive about survival. Or we may be positive about a life-changing operation that will uh, potentially save your life, but will, you know, that, that there would be an impact on that for the rest of your life. And so it's important to know what you're being positive about as opposed to just a relentless drive only for positivity. And the other thing is that all your feelings are valid. And that includes anger. And anger is actually quite uh, an empowering emotion. And actually, you probably would spend a lot of time trying to sit on them. Um, and if we spend all our time just trying to sit on our negative emotions and pretend that they're not there and keep them in the box, um, then we're not living either. So it's about, for me at least, it was always about accepting them and living with them um, or engaging or not engaging with them as the case may be. You, you talk in the book about self-care, which has become this big buzzword that you often see on Instagram um, someone may upload a picture of them taking a bath or you know buying themselves a new book and they call it self-care and you say that you know that might well be that might be all well and good but you say that self-care starts with physical health so what advice would you give to approaching the subject of self-care so self-care is really popular, um, but I, I'm not sure that it starts just with physical health. I think it starts with health and health is a is not just physical, it's psychological as well. But you start with are your basic needs being met and they start with do you have food in your belly and access to water and are you dry and do you have a roof under which to sleep? And then are you looking after yourself? Are you attending screening? Are you taking your medicines? Are you doing all those other things? Are you then moving your body? Are you eating? Um, and are you being nurtured in whatever way it is that you need to be nurtured? Because when patients come and see me and they say, I'm really trying to look after myself, you know, I make sure that I get my nails done. But you're not taking your antidepressants. Mm -hmm. and, and you need those. 
or whatever else, you know, your antihypertensives or whatever it is, you focus um, more internally first. And for me, actually, that has been moving my body, so physical activity, nurturing my mind, and that's therapy. Um, And those two things for me will heal my body. And that's my first port of self-care. You end the diary with a a gratitude. You you mentioned gratitude, a practice. And how important have you found the practice of gratitude to be throughout that process and your life in general? I wouldn't necessarily say that I thought about it in a in an active way of I must think about something to be grateful for today um but it's it's it it came more organically than that in that that was my primary emotion from uh even even in in hospital in my first operation I, I wrote a letter to the gynecologist who sent me to see a bowel surgeon to say thank you to him um, because the whole way through I just felt incredibly grateful to be picked up when I was and I still feel that and I feel incredibly grateful um, for being looked after the way that I was looked after and now I feel incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to use that and to use the platform that I have to help other people. I would say that I practice gratitude with my kids in a far more sort of processed way because having felt that now myself and having felt the value of that for myself, um, I think that it's a really useful tool. So we would start, you know, when we sit down at the dinner table together, tell me um, something good about your day, something that you would like to have gone better and how we could make that better and something that you are thankful for um and actually for me I guess that was the most positive bit you know we were talking about positivity right now but to be able to look at a trauma with gratitude has been really healing the the last question I have for you is one that we ask every guest and if I just give you the example of myself, so for, for what makes my life worth living at the moment is having conversations like these and putting them out there for people to listen to and knowing that, you know, they'll impact somebody's life. And, and you know, if that happens, I can go to bed at night and I'm, um, you know, I can sleep easy. But for you right now, this could be anything. It could be spreading a message. It could be your family. Right now, for Philippa Kay, what makes a life worth living? That's a hard question, isn't it? <laughs> um, what I want to do is to help other people, and especially other cancer patients, know that they are enough too, and that they do have the strength to do whatever it is that is going to happen to them. Um, and as I said that doesn't always have to be positive and now I have a new purpose um, which is to try and raise awareness of cancer and try and use whatever platform I have to help people with it if I have to choose I'm still going to put my kids first but I think that we are lucky enough that we get to have more than one thing that makes our lives worth living amazing beautifully put for everyone listening now who may want to 
find more from yourself, connect with you, check out this brilliant book, where can they find you and the book? Um, so the book is called Doctors Get Cancer 2. It is available online currently as we are in lockdown. But when it gets lifted, it will be in bookshops and supermarkets. And you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Dr. Philippa K. Perfect. And all of that will be linked in the show notes below. Um, Dr. Philippa K, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure and it's a, it's a real honor to speak to you and one that I thoroughly enjoyed. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I have to say, your questions were really insightful, actually. Thank you so much for spending yet another Monday with me. I have been your host, Lewis, on the Freedom Pack podcast. I pass you on to my co-host, Joe, who will be releasing another episode on Friday. And I heard it's a very, very good one. Uh, a returning guest, I believe. So please join us again on Friday to see who that is and hopefully enjoy another great conversation. Until then, I can only thank you once again for joining me today and giving me your attention. And I hope we've brought you some value. And we'll see you next time on the Freedom Pact Podcast.